So be making your way to 1 Timothy right now. Um, as you are, you've probably heard a story uh, like this. A person is experiencing deep, agonizing guilt over sin. Maybe their lives have fallen apart or have been falling apart. Maybe they've gotten into things they shouldn't have gotten into and the sting of sin, the agonizing ache of a guilty conscience is, a, is eating them alive from the inside out. They're struggling deeply with a sense of complete unworthiness, uh, perhaps even unworthy to come to God, they feel. Uh, they feel like God doesn't love them or won't accept them because of the weight of their sin. Uh, and they, they happen upon a church on a Sunday morning and they walk in, in the back doors, and they kind of sit, not to be seen by anyone, just to kind of come in and have a seat in the back, uh, to take it in kind of as a last-ditch effort to hear something that might help them. I'm actually describing uh, what happened to a friend of mine. And he came back, or sat in the back of the church, not this church, this has happened in the past, and didn't really know what he was looking for exactly, knew that his life had been spiraling out of control and he needed something to help and thought maybe the church would offer it. And as he sat in the back, he heard the most amazing news a sinner could ever hear. He heard, to his great surprise, that God loves to save sinners. That there was a way for the most vile of sinners to be totally forgiven that there was a way for all his guilt to be washed away, that there was a way for him to be declared innocent, and, and not even in that, there was a way for him to be transformed. And sitting in the back of the church on that morning, although he hadn't uh, thought that he would come from that church or that encounter a changed man, the message of the gospel was so utterly compelling to him and probably most compelling of all was the reality that he was told that morning was that you don't have to do anything to earn this. That this is something that God has already done in full, finished for sinners. That Jesus has come for sinners to pay penalty, the penalty for sin on the cross and then to conquer it in the resurrection. And then as a, he ascends into heaven to freely give the gift of eternal life, of forgiveness of sins, of his very unrighteousness to anyone who simply believes that he wouldn't have to climb up the ladder to heaven, he wouldn't have to kill himself with over and over again trying to do good enough works to please God and impress God. It was all through Jesus Christ by faith. The person that I'm referring to repented Entrusted in Christ. Guys, that's why we gather this morning. That's why we gather every morning. Jesus is alive. He has conquered death. Sinners can be forgiven. And those guilt-laden sinners who are struggling to even consider whether such God in heaven would ever love them, would ever forgive them, you know they live next door to you. You know they work with you at your job. They're in your family, and often you wouldn't have the slightest clue that their insides are twisting over guilt and aching over their shame. 
So friends, we have a gospel to preserve here. If you haven't trusted in this Jesus Christ, you can trust him this very moment. In the moment you trust him, all your sins are forgiven, washed clean, you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, and you're justified. And God then is adopting you into his family to be his children, and you will enjoy that relationship forever. Isn't this good news, church? This is the best news we could ever think of. Total forgiveness and acceptance, freely offered to anyone. And so we believe this. Now, this isn't the only thing we believe. It's the most important thing that we want to make sure that we're always talking about, uh, that we talk about it from up front, we talk about it in our conversations, we talk about it with our unbelieving friends and neighbors. This is just normal for us to talk about how God saves sinners. We believe this is good news, but it's not the only important thing we believe. We believe a lot of very important things. In fact, we believe that the church... And, and who we are as people and how we organize ourselves and what we do together and how we uh, relate to one another is all very important because if we want the gospel to continue being preached from generation to generation to generation uh, so that your children and your children's children and great-grandchildren can continue to hear the gospel in this place, we know that it's not merely enough to get the gospel right we must understand how the church should organize itself so as to perpetuate the gospel witness from generation to generation. Uh, think of it this way, that the church is like a mantle that's built so that the trophy of the gospel can be put on prominent display. And if the mantle itself is old and decaying and there's no one taking care of it, well, eventually it's going to break down so that even the gospel that we cherish, that we proclaim, becomes obscured by the filthiness of the mantle. You could think of it like a lighthouse, and the light of the gospel shines, but if the lighthouse itself is never cared for, eventually it'll get worn down and the light won't be able to shine anymore because the lighthouse will be falling into the sea. And so here's the analogy Paul says, in this book we've been studying in 1 Timothy, he says in chapter 3, he says that the church is the pillar and support or the pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth of Jesus Christ, that truth that saves sinners, that truth that people can walk in here and have no idea how to get their sins forgiven, can hear and be saved, that gospel message is meant to be preserved by the church, us. And so, while we believe the gospel is central, we really hold up high priority on making sure we know what the church is supposed to be, and so that we can organize ourselves. And that's why this whole letter to Timothy is so important, because Paul's writing to Timothy so that Timothy knows how to get this church in Ephesus that Timothy was supposed to be serving to try to get it under control. This church was a total mess. And so what's happening in this letter, just to, by way of reminder, um, Paul writes to Timothy, to Timothy who's in the city of Ephesus, who's at a church in Ephesus. He says, Timothy, I want you to go to Ephesus, stay in Ephesus, and there's all kinds of bad things going on in Ephesus, and I want you to kind of take care of them. You're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He's got to tell people not to teach any different doctrine. He wants to make sure that the law is being understood in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 1. There are people, verse 7, that want to be teachers of the law. They're asserting themselves, but they're, and they're confident, but they actually have no idea what they're talking about. Timothy's got to deal with them. 
You've got to remember the power of the gospel. That's what chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 is about. Paul himself, who was once a persecutor, got completely converted by the truths of the gospel, by the grace of God. Timothy's got to remember that to be able to help this church. This charge, this commissioning, this command is given to Timothy to be there and serve this church as if it's a warfare. As if Timothy's a soldier we're told of uh, two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, chapter 1, verse 20, who were upsetting the church and that Paul had to deal with previously, but we know from the rest of the letter that those weren't the only two people upsetting the church. The church was filled with men who were bickering, uh, people who were divisive, um, people who were in it for their own ego or in it for their own financial gain. And so Timothy has a huge job ahead of him. And by chapter 2... Paul's ready to start giving some directives. All right, your church is a mess, Timothy. Here's what you got to do. Chapter 2, verse 1, look at what he says. First of all, okay, here's what you do first. First of all, I urge supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all, Timothy, get the church praying. That's what he's saying. Get the church praying. There's no church reform that will ever happen outside of prayer. Make sure they pray. And I hope you notice in our church gatherings, we try to obey this text. We're going to pray for different categories of leadership in the world, as verse 2 tells us to. We're going to have different types of prayer, as verse 1 tells us to. We're going to confess our sin. We're going to intercede for the lost. We're going to give thanks and praise in our prayers that's normal here, and it becomes more and more normal the more we do this together. We just pray together as a, uh, uh, actual, an expression of our actual belief in a living God who hears prayer. And so the first thing he's saying, first of all, pray as a church. Now, that's not controversial. But this next section we get to might be a little controversial because he begins by saying pray. That's not controversial. But then he gets to chapter 2, verse 8, and he begins to speak of gender roles. Could we think of something more controversial in our day? Gender roles. Pray, non-controversial. Every Christian agrees that we should pray. Men and women's roles in the church, controversy. And we kind of know why it's controversial, right? Because God in his sovereign and omnipotent goodness, in his providence, in his perfect wisdom. He knows how to set up the world. He knows what's best for his people. And he creates beautiful designs to bless his people, and we know that there is an enemy who hates God's design. And so wherever God creates something beautiful, count on it, Satan will follow in and try to disrupt it in some way. God will make beautiful trees, and what does Satan want us to do is to chop them down, carve them into an idol, bow down and worship those trees. Uh, Think of anything that God has given, and there will always be behind it a distortion of some sort. In Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, the the demon, Screwtape, makes this point that Satan can't actually create anything. All he can do is pervert. All he can do is take God's good creation, twist it in some way, and then give it back to people as a false and cheap substitute for the real thing. And so we're going to get to a point that's controversial, but we know why it's controversial is because it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's healthy, and the evil one wants to rail against it and wants us to rail against it. And so we're going to look at gender roles this morning. And you think, well, what's the value of looking at gender roles? It's, It's, friends, because 
And one of the reasons is because when we know how to relate to one another, understanding our roles, the God-given roles for men and for women, it brings a health and a beauty, a humaneness to the church, which enables us over the long haul to continue preaching the gospel. That's why this stuff matters. If you think about it, gender is woven into the very fabric of humanity, isn't it? You've got to understand this. Break down a society, you might have governments. Break down governments into subsections. You've got little smaller governments under the main government. You break down those subsections. You've got communities. Uh, you break down a community into what? You've got the family. And if you're to look at the family, what do you have there? You've got a man and you've got a woman, a husband and a wife. The very foundation of the family is the bringing together of two genders. And together they have children and raise up people to live in a society. The building block of the society that we live in in every society on planet earth is the family. And so if society will thrive, gender needs to be understood. And if gender's not understood, it's not long before the ripple effects will not only affect the family, of course it'll affect the family, but the ripple effects will step up and they will get into our very society and impact the way we function, it will impact the, uh, the fruitfulness and beauty of our society. And the same is true in the church. If the church doesn't know gender roles, if the church doesn't understand who God has made men to be and what God has made women to be. And if women and men don't embrace those roles in the church, it won't be long until the church begins to fall apart and lose effectiveness. And it won't be long until the very gospel, give it enough time, the very gospel will fall away to the wayside. So this is an effort to fight for the gospel for the long haul. To fight for the health of the church is to fight for the gospel in the long haul. So that we are here generations from now not capitulating to the culture on anything that is clearly revealed in Scripture. So that we can continue preaching truth because it's beautiful and good, healthy. And so in Paul's day, they needed to know the roles of gender in the church. Do you think it's uh, important for our generation to understand gender? Think we have any less of a need than Paul had in his day to address this? Do you think we're clearer on gender roles in today's society than they were back then? I think it's an urgent issue, is it not? It's an urgent issue before the church. I could and probably shouldn't go on and on and on and it would take all morning to describe some of the issues related to gender in our society. Um, but I'm just going to assume you already know all these things that are happening. Uh, it's definitely past the point of not understanding gender roles. We, we are at a point as a society where we hate gender, period. The idea of gender is uh, old-fashioned. It's uh, a curse on modern society. The modern mindset is that gender should be set aside uh, so that individuals can fully express themselves without any restraints whatsoever, even biological ones that God has assigned to them at birth. The modern mindset is that men and women are not different. There's no differentiation between male and female. Aside from anatomy, everything else is to be exactly the same. And therefore, male leadership is a curse on society. 
It's perpetuated by ignorant parents in old-fashioned systems that bolster toxic patriarchy. And the idea is that if we want to find true fulfillment in life, if we want to find true self-expression, and we want to fully be ourselves, we need to ditch genders. That's the teaching of today. And so what we're going to do before we even get into the text We're going to go to Genesis because I think it would be helpful to have our theology of gender in place as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. So turn to Genesis chapter 1 and so much of the world's problems, so many of them could just be solved if people understood Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So much is there related to biblical anthropology, who we are, what we were made for, what's our biggest problem, how can we be saved. All of these are found in the first three chapters of the Bible. And so I want to start there and then we'll get to our text. And so you go to Genesis 1 and you first of all, I'm not even going to have you look at it, but you can in Genesis 1.1, we realize that this world is created by God is created by God. Everything is made by Him. There's nothing that comes into existence that isn't made by Him, and therefore He owns everything. It's all His. He is the one who shapes it, designs it, fashions it according to how He wants, according to His good pleasure. God is the owner and decider, the author of everything. That's Genesis 1.1. There was nothing, and then there was everything, and God put everything into existence. Now we're going to see he creates, he creates, he creates the world. He fills up the planet with good things. It's all very good. The refrain is repeated again and again throughout Genesis 1. And then I want you to come with me to verse 26 of chapter 1, where he creates mankind. And it says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And male and female, he created them. The image of God in man. The first thing we got to understand, we're going to look at three points in Genesis super quick. The first point we got to understand is this, that men and women are equally made in the image of God. God assigns gender, never forget that. God invented gender, never forget that. And never forget that both genders, male and female, bear the image of God. What does that mean? Well, that means in part we reflect something true about God in our ability to think, in our ability to be creative, in our rational capabilities, we are reflecting something of the image of God to the world around us. We are image bearers. That's what it means to be made in God's image. When you look at another human being, there is something true about God that you can know from the way they have been made. They are made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, Adam and Eve have a son. It says that the son bears Adam's likeness and Adam's image. A child has the image and likeness of the father. In a few months, Michael and Taylor are going to have their little baby boy. And all the Sharas are going to say that that baby boy looks like Michael. And all of Taylor's family is going to say it looks just like Taylor. And they're going to argue about whose image and likeness does this baby bear. And then we'll all have our own say, which will be great for them to deal with. Everyone's thinking this baby looks like someone. The point is that when a child is coming into the world, it bears the image of the parent. 
And so when God makes us in his image, we bear something true about God. We, we reflect something about God. This is so important to remember because here's what this means. Men and women both equally share in this image. Men aren't made with more of the image of God than women. Women aren't made with more than men. Neither of those are true. There's an equal uh, gift of the image of God in both men and women, which means this. Here's the implication. Men and women are worthy of equal honor, equal respect, equal dignity. Women are, to be, are not to be given less honor than men. They are never to be treated with less dignity than men. And we repudiate any system of thought or any religion that claims that women are inferior to men in this way. Okay? It's very crystal clear. Wherever the Bible goes, women are elevated. Historically, this is an objective fact. Wherever Christianity goes, women are cared for with more dignity and respect. Okay, so we first state this. Women and men both equally bear the image of God. Here's our second statement. Men and women are equal participants in God's plan for the world. You see this in verse 28. And God blessed them, God says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. I tell you, this command is not just given to Adam. He cannot bear children. He cannot be fruitful and multiply apart from his wife, Eve. The command is given to Adam and Eve together. Both male and female are given this command to bear fruit in the world, to multiply in the world, to fill the earth in the world, to subdue the world, to have dominion over the world. Both men and women together, not just male, but female as well, together, working together to harness the created world, to bring glory to God as his image bears. Both men and women are both equal participants in God's plan for the world. That doesn't change when you get to the New Testament. That doesn't change when you think about the nature of the church. It will not change. That is the nature of the image of God is that both are needed in God's plans for redemption. Now, number three, a third point on this from Genesis, we're going to find in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 1, you kind of get the big overview of creation with not as many details about how God made the man and the woman. In Genesis 2, the story kind of rewinds, goes back, and zooms in on the creation of Adam and Eve. And in verse 7 of chapter 2, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's Adam being created. In verse 15, going down a little bit further, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The man was given a task before the woman was around, and the task was work and keep. The Hebrew word for work is avad. It means to serve. It means to labor. It means to build. It means to cultivate. Uh, Adam's put in a garden, and he's given this task to work, keep, cultivate, build, it basically is the idea of bringing order from chaos to bring um, things together in such a way that they grow and are made healthy. The other word is the word keep, shamar in Hebrew, to watch. It's kind of more of a military type word, to guard, to protect. The Hebrew word uh, is related to a fortress. So it has the idea of that which he works for is that which he protects, that's which he builds, that's what he guards. The, uh, the, the man here is meant to be the caretaker of the garden. 
He's meant to build it up and cultivate it and work hard. And so it produces good things. This is what men are made to do. And then he is supposed to protect it. He's supposed to guard it and watch it. Building, protecting, cultivating, guarding. Adam is given this task. And then, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So Adam's given this role to play, but then God reflects for the first time in his creation that there's something not good that he's made. And the thing that's not good is that the man is alone. And he says this crucial statement. God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Some translations, I will make a helper corresponding to him. And so God, you know the story, brings all the animals before Adam. He parades them out in front of him, and none of them are, <laughs> none of them are ones that he really wants as a companion. I mean, uh, I could imagine God bringing the dog to Adam, and, and that's fun, throwing a stick to the dog for a good five minutes, ten minutes, maybe you could do it for a half hour, and after a while, that dog is still going and really excited, and Adam's just going, I can't even talk to this thing. I, I want something I can, my equal, someone that I can share life with, something that will, some, something else. And it almost seems like a, that Adam would have been worn out having all these animals and none of them are a helper corresponding to him, for, for him. And so God causes a sleep to fall on Adam and from his rib he creates woman. And Adam erupts into worship seeing the woman. Verse 23, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so what we see here is our third point. The first one is they're both created equally in the image of God. The second one is they're both participants in God's plans for the world. And here we see when the narrative zooms in on the unique creation of both genders, we see that they're both given different roles. The man is a worker and a keeper. He's a builder and a protector. The woman is built to help him, to correspond to him, to invest in him. And the woman, as his equal, gives Adam this joy, this true companionship. And this woman is created to use her intellect and her wisdom and her strength and her giftedness to help the man in his role in guarding and keeping and building up the Garden of Eden. The, the biblical account sees a woman as the height of blessing that a man could receive. Uh, is a finishing touch on creation. She's literally the last thing created. The, literally, it says, it's not good when there's no woman. And then the creation of a woman changes the situation into a good situation. It's a beautiful thing. Contrast that with Greek mythology where uh, it is said that Zeus created women as a curse on man or many other cultures that treat women without dignity, without respect, uh, putting them down and only saying that man are, uh, men are worthy of such things. The women are, are a blessing to the men. Now, what this means is, as we think about the roles that God has given us, it means that uh, 
one of the things we notice in the tasks that were given to each gender is that the man was given a more task-oriented task, work, keep. The woman was given a more person-centered task, help. Uh, the, the idea is that the, the, the man is oriented toward the task, and the woman here with Adam and Eve is oriented toward the man. The man has his eyes on the job that needs to be done. We like to fix things. <laughs> we see a problem. We have a solution. We want to get it done. We want to you know, finish the job and walk away, and that's complete. And the woman typically has her eyes on the person, the people. In this case, the husband. And her aim is, in this case, helping, serving. She's inclined to submit herself to the leadership of the husband and to help and aid with the task that needs to be done, but her focus isn't always primarily the task at hand. Uh, I think this shows itself out. I, I mean, just trying to think of examples of this. I'm always amazed at a woman's intuition. Right, guys? My wife will point out things that I wouldn't notice in a million years about another person. Uh, things that someone says that she'll pick up on, even body language that my wife will be able to point out to me later on and say, hey, did you notice this? You might want to stay away from that person or things of that nature that I'm like, huh, nope, didn't notice anything about that. And she'll, have to, she'll, she'll come in and tell me. She, she's oriented to people, to notice things. She's a person-oriented woman as women are made. This is why my daughters can make families out of anything. At the dinner table, the big spoon is the daddy, the little fork is the mommy, and the butter knife is the baby. We could be at the park, the big stick's daddy, the little one is the baby, and, and somewhere the mommy is around and the middle-sized stick. It's, it, it, I could give my kids, my, my daughters, a dump truck, and they'd swaddle it and get a bottle and try to nurse that thing. Uh, it's built in. And this is what you see in Genesis is that God made men to work, keep, build, protect, and he made women to come alongside and they're oriented toward the person, the man, to help and to aid. And so with that is this ability to know people, what they need and be willing to care for them in ways that men normally aren't as good at. So this is a beautiful difference. It's a beautiful design of God. And so we need to make this clear. Women, you, you didn't become feminine because when you were a kid, someone put a dress on you, gave you a doll, and so you became feminine. You were created feminine by a good God who loves you and wants what's best for you. He gave you all that you are, all your gifts, all your abilities, all the, the talents that, uh, that he has given you on purpose for your good. And so this is a beautiful thing in the church when men know their roles and women know their roles. And so now let's get back to 1 Timothy. You could turn back there. That kind of lays a foundation because what's happening is that the men are quarreling about all kinds of things. And so much of 1 Timothy is written to men who are just all kinds of out of line. They're, they're, they're teaching, but they're, they're not teaching with good godly authority. They're, they're lording it over people, making confident assertions about things that aren't true. Uh, they are not promoting love. They're promoting speculation, dissension in the church. Uh, 
and, and so they need to be addressed. But also in the church, there's women that are all kinds of out of line as well. And the women need to be talked to as well. It seems like, according to the text we're about to read, that some women were coming to church all garish and gaudy and dressing themselves up and trying to get people's attention. Um, and probably also because of the failure of the men to lead the way they're supposed to, certain women were stepping in and trying to fill leadership roles. And all this was a mess. And so Paul needs to address the men. Paul needs to address the women. And in order for the church to be healthy, the genders got to understand what their roles are. Now we turn to verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Follow along, I'll read the whole text and then we'll go at it a little chunk at a time. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, quarreling. Likewise, that the women should, all, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, guys, we got a lot ahead of us. We're going to dive right in. Okay, here's where we start. Verse 8, Paul has to talk to the men. The men need to be addressed first. In the context of prayer, which just came before what we just read, uh, he has to remind that the men ought to be leading in prayer. In every place, he says, I desire that then every place the men should pray. He's probably referring to different house churches that Timothy would have been familiar with. So in churches, as the corporate gathering comes together, as the, they gather for public worship, men, you ought to be leading in prayer, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He's calling for men to stop their fighting, uh, to put away sin, and lift holy hands, not stained hands, and lift hands that are centered and focused on God, not on fighting or settling disputes, and they are to lead in prayer. Uh, men were not doing this the way they ought to, the way they were supposed to, and so this needed to be addressed. So he starts in the context of prayer by addressing the men. I hope in this church that as we go on, more and more of our men will have a desire to lead out in prayer, as this text calls us to. I'm thankful for Mark this morning leading us through various prayers as a church. I think that is aligned with what the Bible teaches us to do, is to have men pray. Now let me remind you just about what the context of this is. This is referring to the corporate gathering. That's why he says in every place. That is referring to the church gathered as a church to worship. So let me make clear, this doesn't mean that women should not pray. This doesn't mean that women should not pray in our growth groups. It doesn't even mean that women shouldn't pray with other men present or things like that. It doesn't mean that. When we gather on a Sunday evening, as we do often, we open up for everyone to pray and have opportunities to pray, and it is totally fine if women are able to pray in there. This is talking when the whole church has come together for the purpose of worshiping God in this context. It should be the men who lead out in prayer. 
And then he moves on. That's a pretty quick statement. He doesn't even, in the English at least, the sentence isn't even complete before he starts addressing the women. Like I said, most of the letter is addressed to so many of the issues that the men have. And so he takes a little portion here to address now the women. And so he's going to address really three categories with the woman. The woman's appearance, the woman's learning, and the woman's childbearing. We're going to work through those one by one, and this is a little bit of a harder passage. And so I hope to explain the text. That's always our hope. But here, we might have to spend a little more time looking at things like grammar and syntax and word meanings in Greek and all that. And that hopefully will be good to just draw out the meaning of this verse, okay? You with me? So this is very important that we see what God's Word says here. Verse 9, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. He begins by talking about how a woman presents herself. It seems like in this context, it's the men's propensity to get into fights, and so he tells them, stop quarreling and start praying, and it might be the woman's propensity to spend way too much thinking about and being preoccupied about drawing attention to herself with the way she wants to appear. And so what Paul does is address the woman. He says a woman should adorn, and that word adorn in Greek is cosmain. It actually is related to the noun cosmos is where we get the word world. The antonym to this word would be chaos. What this is saying here is that a woman should not come to church chaotic, but to be orderly. Uh, the word can mean to be put together. It's actually the word that we get in English, cosmetics. Uh, it's the idea of a woman is giving attention to her appearance. And then you go a little bit further. They should put themselves in respectable apparel. And something important to note about this word apparel is that it's a broader word than the English word apparel. It doesn't merely mean clothing. It also means appearance. It means demeanor. It means posture. And so what Paul is getting at is this. He's saying, women in the church, it is good to think about what you're wearing to the public worship service. It's good to think about that. And what specifically you should think about is coming to church orderly, not in chaos, put together with respect, respectable apparel, but more than your apparel. Uh, that apparel addresses the heart, which is important. And so it starts there, and then it goes out to what you're choosing to put on. This is, this is a call for women to actually think about what they're going to wear to church. I was wondering, maybe this text would be an excuse for me to tell Ashley to get ready a little quicker. Come on, let's go. But it actually isn't that. It's actually, women should think about this. This is an important thing. And what they should think about is dressing in such a way that becomes someone who's worshiping the living God in public. It's someone who's coming to a group uh, where we're all to be focused, not on each other primarily, but on God. That's why we're here, isn't it? And so the demeanor, the posture, the appearance that women are meant to adorn themselves with is orderly, respectable, uh, moderate is the idea. Not chaotic, not slovenly, not sloppy. This isn't a call for plain Jane type stuff. 
In fact, it's, it's really interesting if in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, which has all these uh, statements about an ideal woman and, and her characteristics, there's even some statements about how she dresses. And in chapter 31, verse 22, it says this, that the ideal Proverbs 31 woman, it says her clothing is fine linen and purple. This is, this is fine stuff, that the Proverbs 31 woman is really well-dressed. She has purple clothes, which in those days was almost royalty. It was, it was something very nice. Uh, in, in Song of Solomon, for her husband, the bride dresses herself up beautifully, and this is good. God made women beautiful creations of God. They're allowed to dress beautifully. That's okay. What Paul is getting at is more of a heart issue that is saying this. You're dressing in such a way so as to draw attention to yourself. Rather, adorn yourself with respectable, reverent, ordered apparel. This, this is a question that we can ask ourselves to get straight to the heart. You're going to notice all through what Paul is addressing here, the main issue at hand that women need to ask themselves that Paul is bringing up here is whose attention are you after when you're getting dressed? Who, who, who are you trying to draw attention to? And what his point is, is if you're going to church, just know who you're competing with if you're trying to draw attention to yourself because attention is not meant to be on you or me or anyone else. It's to be on God. You don't want to compete with God for glory. And so he, he, he's bringing this up. He goes on to say that women's clothing should be respectable, and there should be apparel. And then he notes these two words with modesty and self-control. And both of these words in the Greek have sexual connotations. And so we have to say it. The issue is women dressing to highlight their bodies, their shape, trying to be able to draw the attention of others, especially men. This is what he's saying, there needs to be a modesty in the way that you dress and a kind of self-control so that you're not trying to allure people in, allure other men towards you so that they lust after you. He's encouraging them not to do that. He, he just commanded men, or sorry, women, to dress respectfully and even to put thought into the orderliness in the way that they dress and is a part of that, they're to be modest, self-controlled, not trying to highlight any kind of sexuality in their clothing. He goes on to say, not with braided hair and with gold pearls or costly attire. So first he's kind of addressing the clothing and the demeanor. Don't draw attention to yourself with the clothing and the demeanor. Uh, don't, don't do that. Um, then he's addressing their, their bodies. Don't try to use your bodies as bait to get guys to look at you. Don't try to do that. And then he draws attention in this next part. Uh, don't try to get people to look at you because of your wealth. Look at what he says. Braided hair, gold, pearls. Uh, to have gold in those days was to be rich as it is in our day. If you have a lot of gold, you could be considered a wealthy person. But in those days, pearls were three times uh, more valuable than in any gold, and so to have pearls was even more a, a sign of wealth. And so what would happen in these old churches that Paul's addressing is women would come in, uh, and the word, by the way, for braided in Greek doesn't necessarily have to do with, you know, the thing we think of as a braid, this one goes over here, and that one goes in the middle, and that, that I still really have a rough time doing. Um, it's not really that. It's referring to any kind of a hair arrangement that has to do with over-the-top, way outlandish ways of doing hair so as to draw attention. 
This is what he's referring to. And what would happen is, is they do their hair up all like this, and then they get gold strands and wrap them all in, and then they get pearls and figure out a way to get those dangling from their hairdo. And the whole thing would be they're stacking all their wealth on their scalp as they walk in the door, and it was kind of like this peacock strut, like, hey, everyone, look at how wealthy I am, as a way to assert authority or to get power other people and other women in the church. Um, I don't know what the, 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 the modern equivalent would be, but it would be dressing in such a way so that your clothing is rich and expensive and glitzy and glamorous, and so you walk in and everyone goes, wow, look at that dress or that purse, look at those earrings, uh, and, and all the attention is being drawn to you. And so the idea isn't that ponytails are good, braids are bad. <laughs> it's this idea, the whole point of the passage is not to address certain types of hairstyle. The whole point is, are you dressing up in such a way to flaunt wealth, to draw attention to yourself? Are you dressing up to draw attention to your body? Are you dressing up to draw attention to your clothing, your fashion style? This is what it shouldn't be for women in the church. Like I said, you don't want to compete with God for glory in the church. You don't want to compete with him for attention. And so the the call to women here is that they wouldn't do these things. They would rather, verse 10, adorn themselves with what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So the, the main reason people notice you is because you're on the front line serving and helping and jumping in where there's need. The, the good works characterize your life. That people wouldn't think about you and they immediately jump to your fashion. They think about you and they immediately jump to your service, your good works that you render to the people in the church on a regular basis. Like Proverbs 31.25 says, strength and dignity are her clothing. Wear that to church. Wear strength and dignity as a respectable woman to church. Peter says it well also. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Oh, that's precious to God. When a woman walks in and her beauty is on display, but it's the beauty of a gentle heart, a quiet spirit, where where, she's wearing strength and dignity. She's filled with good works. And so I'm, I'm thankful uh, for the help of other women in preparing this sermon. Uh, I read a book called Becoming God's True Woman, not in public, <laughs> but in my office where no one else could see. And there was a chapter by Carolyn Mahaney um, it was really helpful, and she has a bunch of questions at the end of the chapter to challenge women. So I'm going to read three of them to you just to help you think about this issue for you. She says this, first question, do I spend more time daily caring for my personal appearance than I do in Bible study, in prayer, and worship? She asks, do I spend excessive money on clothes, hair, and makeup? or it is an amount that is God-honoring? A third question, do I ever dress with the intent of drawing attention to myself, or do I always dress in a manner that pleases God? Those are good questions to think about. Maybe jot those down or tuck them away and think about them as you address your own heart, because again, the main thing here is that 
not the clothing necessarily, the braids or the ponytails or the, those things of that nature. The, the main thing is your heart. We're not going to have anyone standing at the door checking whether you're well-dressed enough to enter into the corporate gathering of worship. But God knows your heart. And He knows if your agenda to show up here in certain types of clothing, He knows if it's to steal glory from Him or to steal attention from Him. He knows if that's the case. And so He calls the women to know their appearance, to, to think about that and to understand what God has called them to. Here's a second. I just looked at the clock. We're not going to start a second one because it's 11.21. Here's, I'm going to skip to the end and, and use this illustration. Um, men and women equal in the church, equal in dignity, equal in usefulness, uh, equal in, in the amount of honor they deserve, but not the same roles. And there's a beauty and a health when the church embraces these roles. It is, a, uh, is something so urgent for churches in our day to embrace so that we can have a long-lasting ministry. As an example of this, uh, Francis Schaeffer, many of you have heard of, maybe read his books, a brilliant Christian philosopher slash a theologian. Uh, his life impacted thousands around the world. Uh, they, he and his wife Edith made a decision in 1955 uh, to open up their home in Switzerland. It became known as Labri, which was a French word for shelter. And they opened up their home, Labri, to uh, young people who were uh, asking questions and struggling with philosophical and theological issues. And the Schaefer family basically opened up their home and welcomed for free any young person who would want to come and stay with them. And they would come in and the idea was, and this is what it says on their website, that their home would be a place where people might find satisfying answers to their questions and practical demonstration of Christian care. That's what the Schaefer's wanted to do. And over the years, hundreds of people got saved there at Labrie in Switzerland. Francis Schaeffer's uh, intellect was so overpowering, he would, he would be able to explain uh, and articulate doctrines that were so hard to understand with such clarity that people could understand and embrace them. And such a powerful witness for Christ. But the often untold story is of his wife, Edith. Not many people know much about her, but the reality is that Francis Schaeffer would not have been nearly as effective if it were not for his wife, Edith. One person described her influence saying, as many people were brought to the Lord by, through Mrs. Schaeffer's cinnamon buns as through Dr. Schaeffer's sermons. Speaking of roles, I love that picture. The husband is there and the wife is at her, his side and they're working together. And yes, one might be the one who is teaching and preaching and explaining and doctrine and all these things, expounding the gospel. And there the wife is leading alongside him, helping, serving, doing all the things that Dr. Schaefer would never think to do. And so embracing the people so they could not only understand intellectually what the gospel is, but they could see it lived out in the life of this hospitable woman who would embrace them and weep with them and laugh with them. Man, 
What a picture of the beauty of roles. And we are praying here that our men and women would be working together in harmony, gladly embracing their roles, both mutually respecting and honoring the specific tasks God has given them. And that we pray that as this happens, the church would become more beautiful, more humane, more hospitable, a wonderful place for people to come and find shelter. And in all this, that God would receive glory and that Jesus would continue to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, it is a beautiful thing that you have done in the church and are doing in the church. We thank you for it. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would submit ourselves to your revealed word and embrace the calling you've given to us. We pray that you would allow us to not only tolerate what you have called us to, but rejoice in what you've called us to, delight in what you've called us to, embrace it fully, and in so doing, reflect the gospel. Our biggest desire is that you would receive glory from our lives and from our church family corporately as we gather each Sunday and throughout the week as we scatter, that you would receive glory from us. So shape our lives according to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.